Hi, everyone. Thank you for joining us on Eagle Eye today. Every week, we have exclusive interviews with BC professors, alumni, student athletes, and more. Make sure to follow The Heights on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook to catch up on the latest headlines and recommend guests you'd like to hear from. Joining us today are two guests, founder of Carabiner Group and Boston College Class of 2020, Seamus Breeze Earl, and author of The Perfect Other, A Memoir of My Sister, and BC Class of 2019, Kylie Weddy. Forbes recently named Seamus to its 30 Under 30 Enterprise Technology List and Kylie to its 30 Under 30 Media List. Thank you both so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you for having us. This is awesome. Fantastic. What does being honored on Forbes 30 Under 30 list mean to you? When you heard that, what did you first feel? That's a great question. I was honestly just like very excited. I think it's just a huge honor to be along so many like other amazing people on this list. Um, for me, it's just been an amazing way to meet people, honestly meet new friends, go to events, just kind of like get out of side of my, you know, writing insular <laughs> um, world where I'm just like writing myself my desk all day long and actually get out there and like meet people in cool industries. So it's been really amazing. Yeah, for me, it's, uh, there's, there's, there were two feelings. Uh, one was one of, of, of certainly joy, happiness, whatever. Um, uh, I was actually in flight on an airplane when I got the news. Uh, and, um, so I'm sitting in a middle seat, you know, back in economy squished in and it's like, this is pretty cool. No one around me cares about this, but this is pretty cool for me. Uh, and then, um, the other piece, which I think is a little bit maybe surprising for folks. I've been talking with a couple of people, particularly in the business side of things. Um, and, uh, we almost feel a little bit lost after you get the 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 honor or get on the award or whatever because it's um it's not necessarily something that most of us said okay I, this is my goal right this is something that, that comes along the way but it's certainly one of those things that you kind of have on a pedestal of like this is such a cool thing to to to, to shoot for and now we're like well we've done this what's next right and and frankly there's not a super logical what's next to come after this short of bringing a company public or you know, I don't know, being on the cover of Forbes or, or something. There's such a cachet with uh, being on this list that now that you've got it, it's almost like the dog that caught the car. Um, so we're all busy people, but it is kind of funny how, you know, I've, I've spoken with a few folks and it's, it's a similar um, um, persona, right? I'm sure, Kylie, you, you've got a whole bunch of awards you get to go and shoot for in the, the you know, academic writing world um, next. But for business people, it's kind of like 30 under 30, that's a pretty big you know, pretty big, you know, stopping point for a lot of people. Who was the first person that both of you told when you found out? Oh, goodness. I don't know if I, I think I called, I think I called one of my uh, C-suite execs and told them. Uh, and then honestly, it was like, all right, now what? Do I need to like go and get on morning shows or something like how do I capture the momentum was sort of the conversation um and because I, I I was flying to DC I was I had meetings you know at the Capitol I was it was like I got 15 minutes to say this is cool and then I got to go and go back to work uh, yeah mine was less glamorous <laughs> I was it was after Thanksgiving so I was like Naples Florida with my grandparents and I woke up and I think the email that I won had gotten sent or I was nominated by everyone on the list got sent to my spam folder 
So what mm-hmm. I found out was like from like a Slack group I was invited to join. I was like, is this like a fluke? So I woke up, my retainer like still in, <laughs> like <laughs> went to my like my grandparents' living room, my mom and I, and we were on my computer trying to find it online to see if it was actually real, like trying to verify it. So I was like Googling my name. And then my mom and I just like screened and we saw it. So it was my mom, my grandparents and I like all in the same room. It was like super fun. Um, but yeah, first thing in the morning, like totally frazzled, but really, really, really exciting. That's so exciting. It is funny, by the way, how terrible the rollout was. Um, if oh, I'm, really? I'm, I'm just going to go and blow this thing wide open because this is funny. Three or four different emails, three or four different, you know, invites to various different Slack groups and so on. The website was crap, right? I will use that word being very charitable, <laughs> but it was terrible trying to find your name on anything. Everything was linked linked all around. Um, and they almost all went to spam because their email deliverability is is, is not very good, right? <laughs> so this is like a very common experience for a couple of the people you know, on the list is like, no one knew short of, you know, I knew because Jimmy McDermott, class of 20, who was also on the list, texted me saying, welcome to the club smiley face and that was the only way that i knew to go and check my spam junk folder so that that is not an uncommon experience that's so funny i thought i was the only one i feel better no it was like it was everywhere (laughs) and that was the i mean you were on the east coast so you probably got to register for the launch party uh Mm -hmm. yeah um, and still get a ticket i was you know in the air i didn't think to go and register for it and there's a big party that they throw uh when when people make the list uh and they sold out of tickets uh, oh, that's so bummer. everybody, not everybody got to go, uh, initially. And it was kind of funny because, you know, big, big accomplishment for people. They didn't, didn't everybody get to you know partake. I can't imagine losing that in the spam folder. That's so <laughs> scary. <laughs> um, Seamus for you, what inspired you to start your company? I know you were a recent grad, um, COVID hit and what happened then? What was the thought process? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it was. It's it's been well documented in a number of different things. I did not want to start my company. Starting my company was a a a uh, byproduct of the pandemic. Um, I wanted to go and work for Deloitte. I had a great job lined up with Deloitte. That's why I went to Boston College. I wanted to work in high finance or consulting or or whatever. Uh, and so you know, I got recruited out of the Boston office. It was going to be a lot of fun, get to work with people, enjoy my time. And then the pandemic happened, and they delayed my start date by nine months. So, you know, my personality type, I don't get to just sit around um, and not do anything. Uh, you know, it, it's uh, it, my lasted about two weeks, give or take, um, before I. I kind of went stir crazy. I went through all of Netflix's back catalog and and then it was just, all right, I got to do something with my time. And I'd been doing consulting while I worked, uh, you know, while I was doing school. So I worked full time uh, doing similar work to what I do now um, while I was at BC, uh, just in my dorm room. And so I figured why not double down on that? The goal was to try and pay down my student loans. And uh, uh, it just kind of took off, you know, in a way that was, significant enough where I kind of had to make the choice, I would have regretted it. To this day, that's one of the hardest emails that I've ever sent was, uh, you know, to my mentor at Deloitte saying, hey, I got to, I've got to, you know, turn down this offer. Um, You know, I really wanted to work with you, but this thing has legs and I got to follow it through. So, um, you know, 
short of that, I saw a need because I'd been con consulting um, and I saw a need in the market. And that's what prompted me to you know, ultimately follow that through rather than try and start something else, um, which is the biggest piece of advice I can give to people in general, which is if you want to start your own thing, start it in a way that actually is solving a problem in the market that you've seen and faced rather than trying to do category creation, um, which is a little bit harder to do. Um, you know, and uh, usually has less less chance of success. So starting the business during the pandemic, what were some of the challenges that you maybe had to overcome as a recent college graduate? Well, the first thing I had to do was uh, change, you know, strip my online identity of anything having to do with my age. Um, so that's one thing. People generally uh, don't like giving 20-year-olds uh, power uh, over their businesses which, uh, you know, big surprise, I'm sure, for everybody out there listening. Uh, so I had to go through and say, you know, take off all my graduation dates on LinkedIn and take down some articles that had my my age in it. So that was the first thing. Then it was grow a beard, right? Again, also to make myself appear older. Uh, and finally, it was, you know, uh, finding finding the clients, right? So finding that first five clients is always the hardest. Uh, and uh, I had to get a little creative finding them in, in unorthodox ways. And, but once you got through that, um, you know, it's really been a, a great ride. Uh, you know, the other challenge is that I've done something which is a little rare in business world, which is um, I haven't raised any outside capital. So I'm, I'm what's known as a bootstrapped business. Uh, and uh, it's rare that people get this far with doing that. Um, and so, you know, we've gotten close to running out of money a couple of times, right? Uh, which is uh, always a fun a fun balance to to handle. But um, you know, odd, oddly enough, it, the, the challenges have been mainly uh, you know nothing to do with 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 the pandemic and everything to do with the way the business is operating. Right? If anything, the pandemic made it easier for me to expand because I was able to hire all across the country and have people work virtually, and no one was batting an eye. And now it's an accepted you know mechanism. But back then you know, pre-pandemic, it would not have been, right? We would have had to go and travel on site and it would have been expensive. And I would have had to hire people all around an office and pay for office space, all of those things that add overhead uh, costs to the business. So. Yeah. Interesting how things have changed. Um, Kylie, I'm sure you encountered a different sort of challenges. Maybe for you, you already worked from home or I, maybe the pandemic in that way was welcome because it was normalized to work from home, writing. What was that like for you? Um, and can you tell us a little bit about your book, The Perfect Other? Yeah, definitely. So I'll give you my brief little synopsis of how I got there was that I was at Boston College. I was about to graduate. It was, I think, senior week, actually, which is, you know, good time. But um, I found out that week that I had won the New York Times Modern Love College Essay Contest. And that essay was about how grieving has changed in the digital age. So basically, like now that we have Facebook and Instagram and text messages still available and all those like weird moral conundrums around technology, it makes it hard to accept sometimes that someone we love is gone. Um, so my essay was about that. And then that came out again by when I was graduating. And I was going to go to Columbia in the fall, do my master's in social work to do um, mental health counseling. And my goal was to kind of get my degree in that my PhD in psychology, and then eventually write about psychology, but kind of like a longer path to get that. Um, I ended up deferring Columbia for a year, and I got a job at a magazine as an editorial assistant writing. 
And then I signed with an agent that summer, wrote a book proposal, and then got a book deal um, that fall. So I started writing the book um, that summer, basically with like 80 pages, but I threw out most of those pages and kind of had to start from scratch in the fall. And then I was given eight months to finish the manuscript. And I was working full-time at this magazine in the meantime. So it was very hectic. <laughs> um, and I was, I think it was like, it was March when the pandemic hit. So I went home after that. And I wrote the, honestly like a big, big part of the book just at home, working full-time remotely, but having like some space to actually write. So I don't know if I would have been able to keep my job and write the book if I hadn't been working from home at that point. Unexpected silver linings, obviously a very difficult time, but in some ways easier to multitask, work on different things at once. What yeah, would you definitely. say um, inspired you to write your book and share your sister's story? I think when the essay, the essay kind of went like moderately viral. So I got like responses from people all over the world. And everyone kept saying, like, thank you so much for your vulnerability and sharing this story. And I didn't feel like I was vulnerable in it, really. Like, I really felt like I was holding back the big part of the story, which is mental health, mental illness. And a lot of that was stigma and, you know, shame and also just like fear of my family being vulnerable to the public like this and all those tricky issues. So everyone was thanking me for like sharing this part of my life, but I felt like I was really hiding. And then I just started thinking, like, you know, what's the point? Why am I not being open about this? Like, if I don't want there to be stigma or mental illness, then why am I contributing to it by being silent? And at the same time, like, who am I protecting at this point? You know, my sister is unfortunately gone at this point. Like, I, I could do help for other families and really, like, spread awareness by being honest. So I felt like a really big call just to, like, say, like, the ugly, hard truth and really put it out there and try to get, like, a, you know, capitalizing the audience I already had and make people more aware of mental health. I think that also almost goes along with BC's whole mission of being people for others and the fact that you tried to share your story so that people could maybe have something to relate to. Um, so switching gears a little bit to BC, how for both of you did your educational and extracurricular experiences shake your worth ethic and maybe your professions today? Well, I would say that there's a couple of things that happened. For me, BC was not um, uh, a normal you know, college experience by any stretch of the imagination, right? Um, I spent a lot of time working while I was here. I went through in the three years. Um, I made great friends, but also I was, I was pretty driven and focused. Um, the things that I take away most were, were my experiences working with the both the professors, um, so working with great people who had a passion for what they did um, was really something that I don't think I, I expected to take away from from college quite the same way that I did. Um, I was just back a couple of weeks ago and, uh, you know, knock on a door and talk with a professor you haven't seen in five years and them being genuinely happy for you and, and, and happy to see you. Um, you know, I'd also say that that one of the things which um, also unexpected, uh, the value of a sandwich shop near a campus, right? You know, flatbreads uh, and John A. Camphora and Lionel and everybody in there. Every time I'm in Boston, I go to see them uh, because they're a really important part of my college, you know, and, and I've learned a lot of lessons from them. Lionel's work ethic, John's incredible backstory, 
right? The fact he's 84 now, he and I share a birthday and we have a sandwich together every birthday. Um, anyways, like every time I go back, I, I'm reminded of kind of what it means to be uh, a man for others, a person for others um, from the Jesuit, you know, identity. Uh, and lastly, my time with certain extracurriculars, right? So, so I was the ops coordinator for the, the marching band, right? 140 people having to get people and equipment, um, you know, from place to place, making sure they get there on time, uh, keeping the trains running, as they say, uh, that's a big part of, of what I do now. Right. And, and so, you know, all three of those, you know, sort of elements, it's funny to think about, um, but they're all kind of critical components that really didn't have much to do with the content that I, I learned in the classroom and much more about the way to, to live as a, as a person. Yeah, I would totally agree that I think BC really shaped my experience just with everything. Um, like you said, the whole woman and men for others part of it. I mean, that's been a huge, I think, I think the thing about BC is I think people, the students and the faculty and everyone involved, like really do believe in that. And I think that really comes through. Um, and the community element. I mean, I think there's just, I've had so many people reach out to me from BC. BC has been so supportive of my book. I think um, it just feels like a very like cozy, warm place <laughs> to me still. And I live in New York right now with three girls from BC. We're all roommates um, sharing one bathroom, <laughs> but we're all very close. Um, and I think it's just a big part of my life still, the community element of it. And I, and I think that it inspired me to try to help other people and really like live my life in a, in a way that, you know, I hope is authentic and is kind. Um, and I also, when I was there, I was studying psychology and English. So I was really combining my two interests I do right now. And it was my teacher, Suzanne Byrne, who, um, teaches creative nonfiction among other courses who told me to submit to the modern love New York times contest. So if she hadn't done that, I mean, I wouldn't have any of this. So um, I also do the heights, but I didn't make the editing team. <laughs> I, I think I didn't pass the editing test. <laughs> so you're ahead of me. <laughs> the copy test is a force of nature. <laughs> it is. It's hard. It is. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing both of those experiences. I think it's something, you know, when you're in the college application process, you don't think, oh, what kind of people am I going to meet? What what are my surroundings? But um, I think even so far, I'm a sophomore. I've seen um, the ways in which you have something to learn from everyone you meet, whether it's something you don't want to emulate um, or finding models and mentors of what you do want to become and people who will help push you and help you become that person. Um, both of you, obviously, we already talked about working from home, um, but I think it's unique that you were both kind of working on personal projects. Um, do you have any advice for maybe how to stay disciplined, how to stay motivated, create um, good habits for working from home? I know that a lot of current students will probably work remotely when they enter the workforce, um, at least for some amount of time. So those habits are really important to cultivate now. Yeah, that's a good question too. Um, as someone who like writes basically full time at this point, um, it's really important for me to have a schedule still. So I have to like wake up at a normal hour and like make my coffee and like get dressed and do everything else and then start working immediately. Like I don't want to, it's, I want to be done at a normal work hour. I definitely write sometimes at night and I, and I take like, um, I'm taking a screenwriting night class right now and I take podcast interviews and stuff like that after hours. But in general, I like to have like a semi-regular like 
you know, nine to six schedule. Otherwise I think I would like just lose my mind. <laughs> so I think it's helpful to have just some structure in your day. This is one of the things I'm worried about the most as an employer, frankly. Um, I was talking about it at dinner the other day. Uh, the folks on this call were never meant to go and work in an office or excuse me, in a, in a bedroom by ourselves. Um, that wasn't what we were promised. It wasn't what we were told that was going to happen uh, when we were growing up. Uh, and particularly in tech, what we were told was, oh, we're going to go and work in a big office with kombucha machines and ping pong tables and constant interaction with people. Uh, and that, frankly, doesn't exist right now in a lot of the major markets that folks are, are moving to. Um, I don't know what the answer is. What I've what I've found for myself is that when the inspiration strikes, much like when I was writing, frankly, you know, you can sit at a table and you know work all day and get you know nothing done uh, except for those fifteen minutes where you finally get the motivation to do what you need to do. Freaking do it, right? Like that's the time to pour on the 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 speed. Um, the other piece that I would say is that I think the the work life balance component is a misnomer. I don't think it's a balance. I think it's a flow, right? I was recently, you know, a couple uh, recently, I guess it's not really recent anymore. Last year I was in uh, in Hawaii. I went to visit another, you know, my BC friends who's stationed out there and I was on a boat off of Waikiki and I had my laptop and it was a big, you know, client issue that had to be resolved. I pulled out my laptop that was strong enough cell service. I dealt with the problem for 30 minutes and then I went back to boating around. That's the new world, right? Of like, you're doing your work, but you're also living your life and having fun. And, and you know, if you can find something that you enjoy doing, then um, that's probably the closest thing you're gonna get to, you know, a new sort of balance in this day and age. Because uh, this office thing, as much as personally, I would love to go back to it. And I know a lot of my friends would, um, it's not gonna go back uh, to the way that we expected it to be. Um, pre-pandemic. So we got to all kind of build our own coping mechanisms and the ways um, that you work best, right? Make sure that the way you're working is the way that you work best rather than trying to fit somebody else's model uh, of what they think it should be. In this kind of ever-changing world with things always being thrown at us, like in both of your cases, a pandemic, um, what advice would you have for BC students who are maybe pursuing their dreams of starting a business or becoming an author or entrepreneur? If I'll, I'll go first, I, I think the uh, the biggest thing that I can tell folks who are wanting to go into business is to focus on the things that happen outside of the classroom. Um, nothing, very rarely, uh, are the stuff that you're actually going to be taught, regardless of whether you're an MCAS or CSOM or Lynch or wherever, actually going to be relevant to the work that you're doing. Um, if you learn, you know, and, and go and get your Salesforce admin license, you're able to get an $80,000 job out of school, whether you have a degree or not, right? And fundamentally, that stuff isn't taught in school, because it's very tactical in nature. But that is what we as employers are looking for. Um, in addition to the experience, right? I can't tell you the last time that I looked at a, 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 a GPA, um, I can't tell you the last time I really looked at a school that people were at. I look at what they were able to accomplish more than anything. Um, and that's a, a, I know everybody says that, but maybe coming from someone who is, you know, would be a second year analyst at Deloitte right now, if it hadn't gone a little bit differently, it's real, right? I had a 2.7 econ GPA, 3.7 history GPA. Um, you know, I, it, it, the, the, those things don't correlate, right? So focus your time on the things that, 
really matter and the things that are actually going to give you a, a leg up on the competition and differentiate yourself. Um, because those are the things that a hiring manager, um, you know, or a fund, you know, an investor or whoever you're going to end up working with are going to really care about a lot more than, you know, the name on your diploma or, you know, how well you did in, you know, intro to art history or something. Yeah, that's a great answer. I think um, this probably applies more to writing, but also I'm sure starting a business is similar. But I think we all know about, you know, imposter syndrome and everything else. But I just don't think anyone's going to give you permission to be like, I am a writer or I'm going to, you know, I want to write this book or I want to start this business. So kind of giving yourself that permission and trying to believe in yourself. That sounds cheesy, but <laughs> I really don't think I believe that writing was possible as a full-time career ever in my life. I never thought that I was ever going to get to that point. And I happened to win a contest and get <laughs> really lucky. Um, but I wish I had, you know, maybe stuck with the heights more <laughs> or like really pursued stuff more in undergrad and like believed that I could actually do it because there are, there are opportunities out there and publishing isn't dead. And if you really love something, then you have to follow that. I think Kylie's point is, is really well taken. And I'll just add, you know, BC in particular has such an East Coast culture about pay your dues, do your time. And like the reality is that the real world doesn't work that way, right? Um, it is a meritocracy and nothing should be holding you back other than your own, you know, ability, right? Um, you know, I sit at tables with peers who are 40, 50 years of age and they treat me like a peer because of what I've been able to do. I'm sure Kylie has similar experiences, right? Um, the, the, the reality is that, you know, your, your pedigree doesn't have anything to do with, with your future success. Um, you know, it's just your own ability and the drive that you're going to push, you know, push forward. Thank you. That's important to hear. I think it's comforting to students where there's kind of a contrast. Sometimes you feel like there's so many possibilities ahead of you that it's almost overwhelming to figure out where to channel your energy. And there is also a focus on every test, every assignment, getting it done and the numbers when really, like you said, those experiences, the connections that we're making, even conversations like this are important in figuring out where your skills are and what's also going to bring you a sense of purpose and success later on. So thank you for sharing both of your experiences. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. And I think just to add on to that, that's something where even just being a freshman, when I've spoken to people who... Um, a lot of the times people ask each other, you know, why did you choose BC? And that's one of the things, the connections that you have here and the people that you meet are really things that, at least in your cases, seem to have um, lasted a long time and into your professional lives. So thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank Absolutely. You. Thank you so much. Thank you for tuning in and listening to this episode of Eagle Eye. Remember to follow The Heights on Instagram and Facebook to recommend guests you'd like to hear from and check out The Heights Facebook and Twitter pages every Monday for the latest headlines. See you next time. Bye.